You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, welcome everybody to our dual podcast, just Jared and I, and our topic today is Understanding Deuteronomy and the story of Israel's kings. You know, that part of the Bible you never read because it just keeps repeating itself. I mean, how many stories of bad kings do we need to read, Jared? I don't know. Like, one's enough. Yeah, I remember that when I was a kid. I I remember just kind of flipping through the pages like, yeah, and that was a bad one, and that was a bad one, and that was a bad one. And like half the names are the same. Like, they're all like A and J names for the most part. Joash, Jehoahash, Jehoiakim, Jehoiab, whatever. It's just, and it gets really hard to understand and remember that. It's just a lot of information, but it's still repetitive, and it just keeps going, and it's confusing because of the names. You know, know, kudos to people who, you know, in their daily Bible reading get through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. It's just a lot. I think that's just good to acknowledge that this is hard stuff. One thing we're going to talk about in a minute is, people might be wondering, we're talking about kings, but the title here is Understanding Deuteronomy, and and how those are connected and why those are connected. Because the book of Deuteronomy is written before there are kings, or I, I should say, in the story, Deuteronomy comes before there are kings. Correct. Yeah, in the Bible, but it may be a little more involved than that, and also I'm going to say really interesting to, to to look behind sort of the order of the books in the Bible and to try to look a little bit more deeply into more like historically, I guess. You know, not the Bible's not history, I'm not saying that, but it's just his, sometimes historical analysis can can show something a little bit different than how the Bible's set up, right? So, that's going to be helpful to us, I think, as we look through these books and look at, you know, we're going to keep coming back to this issue that makes it, I think, difficult for people to even want to read some of these stories, and that's a theological issue. Right. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. So where do we want to start? Do we want to start with that, with the theological component? Well, let's at least talk about what it is, right? Yeah. And and that is, you know, usually the term is called retributional theology. Or in layperson's terms, why is God always so mad? And, and why does he seem rather touchy in these stories? And, you know, why is there punishments and, and things like that? And, and it seems like, you know, you've got this world set up in Deuteronomy and then in the stories of the kings, that's very much almost like, you know, if you're doing well, you'll be blessed. And if you're not, you'll be cursed and punished. I think that's a good point just to, to make as we start. That w- w- I mean, that's really the, the basics of retributional theology. So, if you want to impress your friends, call it retributional theology, but in, you know, in, in your house when you're just walking around, call it, if you do good things, good things happen to you and you're blessed. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you and you're cursed. Right. And there is, you know, that's a dominant part of the Old Testament, 
but also you have parts of the Old Testament, which we, we get into one or two things later, but there are also parts of the Old Testament that, that, can, that they can test that idea. And so you have this wonderful dialogue, you know. So at the very least, you know, when we begin talking about Deuteronomy and the stories of the kings, and if there are parts of that, like, I just, I'm not sure what I think about this. You're actually in good company. Because there are parts of the Old Testament that are already doing that very thing of questioning whether this is all that there is. You set that up nicely, Pete, about really think of think of it as like we got we have two actors in this story here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe more than two. But uh, on the one hand we have this this voice in the Old Testament that's basically trying to say, if you do good things, you'll be blessed. If you obey all the commands, you'll be blessed. And if you do all these bad things, you'll be cursed by God. And then there's this other voice that's saying like, no, 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 it's not that simple. There's a huge gray area. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, cut that way as simply. Now, w- maybe you can point out when we're reading our Bible, where might we find these two different voices? Well, the, the main voice that we're looking at today, it begins in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Pentateuch, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy sort of closes out the Pentateuch, but it also introduces the next section of the Bible, which seems to rely a lot on the theology of Deuteronomy. And that's a big issue that we, Jared and I, we want to get into here in, in, this, in this podcast, to sort of talk about where these books came from, why were they written, maybe even when they were written, to help us understand something of the theology in these books themselves. And it gets sort of, you know, pretty hairy. I mean, some of this stuff is, things have been, people been working on this stuff for a long time, and it's stuff that I have to think through again and remind myself what the big issues are. So, it gets a little bit involved, but it's important. And yeah, well, so one of those voices would be the book of Deuteronomy, and then, it, it, like you said, it, it goes on into Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and maybe, is it, isn't it right, maybe a little bit of Jeremiah? Yeah, well, Jeremiah is connected to this as well, but it's, you know, we probably don't have to talk about Jeremiah too much, even though he seems to reflect the same time frame. Right. And also some of the same language and some of the same ideas that you see in those other books. Mm-hmm. Right. And interesting, you, you skipped Ruth. Yes. Joshua, Judges, we have Ruth and Samuel and kings. And we're not going to count Ruth here, and not because we don't like the book of Ruth, but because the the way the, the, the canon of the Old Testament was divided in Judaism before the time of Christianity, it, Ruth was, it was not a part of this section of the Bible. It was put into what's called the writings. And in the writings, you have things like the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. You also actually have Daniel yeah. in there, and, and a lot of other books, you, uh, some other books you might not expect. But the reason why is because it's a story that doesn't really contribute to what this writer who's responsible for Joshua, Judges, and Samuel Kings, he's not really, that's not really his thing, so he's a part of something else, this book of Ruth. But for Protestants, it's, it's sort of a nice thing, because what happens in the book of Ruth, at the end of it, you have a genealogy of David, and then David gets introduced in 1 Samuel. So, that's sort of a nice thing, you know, where you have these, the, the storyline that's being told that makes a lot of sense for Christians who, who tend to read the Old Testament as a story that's going someplace, namely to Jesus. And that's, you know, that's probably why the Protestants have that book in there. But for us, it's completely irrelevant. It's not going to help us at all to try to understand Deuteronomy 
and this story of Israel's kings and retributional theology. It's going to be sort of not really relevant. Yeah, so if you take out, what I'm hearing you say is if you, you know, if you take out Ruth from that section of our Bible, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, those kind of all go together in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a similar theme of this, what we're calling retributional theology, or a certain way of looking at God and how God works with Israel. And it, definitely right. In addition to that, these books echo things that you see in Deuteronomy that you might not see in other books of the Pentateuch. And so those four, I mean, these four books, Joshua, Judges, right? Joshua is the conquest of the land after they leave uh, Egypt and enter the promised land. Then Judges, of course, is the period of the judges before the kings. First Samuel and Second Samuel is about Saul, the first king, and then David, the first good king. And then First Kings and Second Kings take the story from Solomon all the way to the end of the, uh, the kingdom of Judah, when they go into exile to Babylon. So, those books cover probably about, you know, maybe roughly 600 years in terms of the biblical timeline, about 600 years. And they're given a collective name uh, really since the 1940s within biblical scholarship. Those books are called the Deuteronomistic History, or DH for short, because it's a history of Israel, but that looks at that history from the point of view of the theology that you see in Deuteronomy and explains why, you know, these books, they sort of act very, very similar. So, this guy in the 1940s, Martin Note, if you're keeping score at home, he understood and sort of tried to explain why these books look so similar, why they have similar theologies and and why it looks like the writer of Kings and, and Samuel maybe almost – he's very familiar with Deuteronomy, right? And that led to all sorts of other kinds of theories about how those books are connected, which we'll get into. But So, yeah, that, that's really what we're looking at. We're looking at understanding Deuteronomy and also then understanding the Deuteronomistic history. And I think the more we sort of dig into that and try to understand why those books look the way they do, it might actually help us – understand why the theology is so retributional. That's really the bottom line that I think we want to get to today, Jared, right? We want to sort of talk about this retributional notion, but the more we dig into a lot of biblical scholarship, I think, the more clear it's going to become to us why Deuteronomy looks the way that it does. And it might not be the lesson for all time. Right, right. And again, that's why I kind of setting it up as these different voices in the Bible— and how the the Deuteron uh, I always want to say Deuteronomistic instead of however you pronounce that. Um, I said that, didn't I say that? Deuteronomistic. The Deuteronomistic history. Deuteronomistic history. history. You yeah. put the <laughs> emphasis in a different place. The Deuteronomistic yeah. <laughs> history is one voice among others. There there are those who I think we mentioned earlier that would actually straight out contest retributional theology. Like almost seems like they're explicitly trying to question that theology. And others where it's not really a part of it, and they're not really against it. It just doesn't really come up much. Are you thinking of anything specific about parts of the Bible that really contend against this retributional idea? Well, I think Ecclesiastes comes to mind, um, where, you know, I mean, talk about repetitive, I feel like there's many cycles in Ecclesiastes where Kohelet, the the author, the the spokesperson there, is saying, like, who, who really knows? Mm-hmm. Who really knows what happens when we die? What, what is it with his blessings and cursings? It seems like all the, the wicked prosper. Um, so what's up with that? Yeah, 
Which is not supposed to happen in right. a retributional scheme. And he's saying, it happens all the time. What are you, crazy? If, I, if I'm following Deuteronomy here, the world's not making a lot of sense because I see a lot of wicked people prospering mm. and a lot of faithful people suffering. Right. So, and, and then, of course, Job, I think, too, right? And Job, yeah. too, yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. what else would you say, what, what others would you say contend with it? Yeah, quickly, I would say that there are a number of psalms, usually called lament psalms, that have some element of, we thought you always did this, O oh Lord, what happened? <laughs> you know, why, it, it's, I mean, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite ones, and you know, you, people at home, you can look that up whenever you want to, but it's, it's, you know, this writer is starting off with the notion that I know how this is supposed to work, but as for me, I almost slipped, I'd almost lost my foothold, because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His problem is that the wicked are prospering and the righteous are suffering. And that is a legitimate question to ask when you also have books in the Bible like the book of Deuteronomy or First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which seem to operate on that very notion. Well, the other thing, too, Jared, to answer your question more fully, another part which I want to get into but a little bit later is First and Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles are part of the Bible that nobody reads because you can't even make it through First and Second Kings, and then Chronicles, forget it. I'm not going to read the same thing twice. Well, you feel like it's a major accomplishment. You've just run a marathon, and then you hit Chronicles, <laughs> and it's just a list of names, and you just give up. Come on, just 20 more miles. You can do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it's actually a different take on Israel's history that is not compatible with First and Second Kings, and of course, the writer knows that. And it's still in our Bible. Let's jump into that in a minute. But yeah. the, I wanted to mention one thing because I think it's also interesting that came to mind another example where this retributional theology is questioned is actually in the Gospels. Oh, yeah. Um, right. You know, I think of the story of who sinned that this man was born blind. Mm -hmm. So, this question is asked and it's still kind of in the water mm -hmm. um, around Jesus' time. Right. Well, of course, someone had to sin mm -hmm. for a bad thing to happen to them. Right. And that is, that's challenged. Um, well, no one sinned, it's, you know, and I think Jesus' answer was something like, so I could be glorified in this moment or mm -hmm. something. Right. Um, but the, that, that idea was just sort of given, oh, well, who was born blind? Like the assumption is, mm -hmm. obviously someone must have sinned if bad things are happening here, and the gospel. It's the Job question. Yeah. It's the question that the friends ask, what, you must have done something, Job. Nobody just suffers like this. Right. And, you know, that reminder of what Jesus said is important, I think, for all, all of us and for our listeners, too, because the, in my experience, Jared, I don't know if yours is the same, but in my experience, almost a default way of understanding God is on some level retributional. On some level, it's, I didn't go to church enough, I think God's just going to get me. He may get me by making me feel really guilty or this or that, but basically God's disposition is one of running out of patience with you and something bad is going to happen. And even if people wouldn't say it that way, mm -hmm. again, in my experience, all I can say is that that's always, to me, un under the surface, not too far. And it comes from the Bible. I mean, legitimately, that view is there. But like you're saying, it's not the only view. There's there's actually a dialogue and debate going on in the, within the Bible what, what God is like, which is really what we're getting at here. Right. Like, what is God like? Is he, is he like Deuteronomy or the Deuteronomistic historian? Or is there something else that we can be looking for when it comes to the nature of God? Yeah, it, that, that reminds me too just of another passage just to bring Jesus into this, because I think if we follow that trajectory, Jesus continues to question whether retribution is all it's cracked up to be, mm -hmm. 
in the Gospels, and I think of um, in Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the Beatitudes, right? Mm-hmm. And it says, you know, that he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Like, that's a pretty... Um, and also understanding how the original hearers would have thought of that, because if you're banking on this theology of like, well, I'm good because I want good things to happen to me, and then it could be just a devastating sermon to hear, to say, uh, well, no, God sends rain on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the evil and the good. It's like, well, what am I doing all this for then? <laughs> What's the point? Right. And so, for some, you know, for me, and I think you, if we grew up with this idea of God is always out to get me, this can be a liberating thing. But for other people, it could also be like, hey, I've been trying to be good my whole life, and you're telling me that that, that equation doesn't work? Um, so, anyway... But maybe jump back to, you know, we got a little bit off into Jesus, which is always a good thing. But, uh, you know, coming back to the Chronicles and Kings, because I think that'll help us understand maybe where this Deuteronomistic history came from. Mm, And because to understand the difference between Kings and Chronicles is to understand something of the context of what's going on in Israel at the time. Right. Well, we can look at one, maybe one example of how the Deuteronomistic history and Chronicles and the author is usually referred to as the chronicler because biblical scholars like insider language to make other people feel stupid. So, so I'm going to use it now. But it's, it's actually it's it's a nice shorthand way to saying you know Deuteronomistic historian instead of the author first and second Samuel. First, it's too cumbersome. So anyway, so one example and it's it's got to be my favorite example of how they handle things differently is the reign of Manasseh. Right. And if we look at the reign of Manasseh, and that's in Second Kings. Again, if you're driving, don't flip there. Wait till you get home. Take my word for it. So, the reign of Manasseh is in Second Kings 21, and it's a pretty, you know, short story. But the the point is that Manasseh is like the worst king ever. He reigned for 55 years, which is the longest reign of anyone in the history of of the kings, and he did pretty much everything wrong. I mean, if if you want to find a way to get God hacked off, he found it, and. All things like worshiping foreign gods, setting up altars, and sacrificing children, the phrases they're making his son pass through fire, which is child sacrifice, and, you know, encouraging the Israelites to likewise worship false gods and pagan gods. And so, basically, you know, everything that the Israelites were supposed to do when they entered Canaan, everything they were supposed to get rid of, he put back up again. And the result is that he is denounced as basically a wicked king, and he is then promised – again, this is, this is in 2 Kings 21 – it's because of what Manasseh does that this writer talks about how God is going to bring uh, punishment to Jerusalem and to Judah in the same way that the northern kingdom was wiped out by the Assyrians – uh, the same thing and worse is going to happen to the residents of Jerusalem and Judah. And of course, this is talking about the Babylonian exile, which, I, I mean, Manasseh is like 7th century and, you know, maybe within 50 years or so of the beginning of the Babylonian exile. That's sort of where we are in history. So, so bef- yeah, before you go over to Chronicles, to, to summarize, in Kings, Manasseh is all that's wrong with the world. Yes. It's the reason... He's he's not the only king that's going to bring Israel into exile, but he really is kind of the representative bad guy. He's the representative bad guy, but even a little more than that, it's because of him. 
that God finally says, it's sort of like the flood story, I've had it. Yep. <laughs> He's the straw that breaks the camel's back. He's the straw that breaks, breaks the camel's back, correct? And as a result, and he dies, and then later, of course, you keep reading the story and it happens. In fact, you know, Manasseh is so bad that even Manasseh's grandson is Josiah, who is the best king in all these books of the kings. And he does everything right. He actually undoes what his grandfather Manasseh did. And he returns uh, Jerusalem and the people of Judah to faithfulness to the covenant. They're finally celebrating the Passover properly. And, you know, this is, this is the way it should be. But then Josiah dies in battle, which is really unfortunate. That's not supposed to happen. And we read that... Um, Actually, this is right before he dies. There's a little section in Second Kings uh, 23 uh, towards the middle where it, recounting all these um, – I mean, I, I've counted like 15 or 16 major reforms that this writer goes into detail about saying all these great things he did. But then we read in Second Kings 23, 26, still the Lord did not turn from the fiercest of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight. In other words, see, this is the thing that when, when I talk about this with my students, this is where they stop dead in their tracks. You mean that this good that's done by this king, eradicating everything, God is still, he, he can't let go of the anger. That's something that his grandfather did. As a result, the exile is going to come. And that's, that's a hard pill for people to swallow, I think, when, when they're reading these stories. Yeah, so, and you know, long story short, you flip over to Second Chronicles, and uh, the story of Manasseh is in chapter, yeah, in chapter 33, and basically the story goes like this. It starts out the same. It recounts all these horrible sins of Manasseh, and as a result, here's what God did. Now, l- listen to this. He sent the Assyrians to basically grab Manasseh and take Manasseh into exile in Babylon, That's interesting for a number of reasons. One, Kings makes no mention of this. And there was no Assyrian invasion of Israel at the time, of Judah, actually. And they're taking, okay, they come and they just get him. They don't bother sacking Jerusalem or going to war. They just sort of grab him. And they take him not to Assyria, but to Babylon. And historically and logically, that makes no sense, but that's because this writer is trying to say something different, something that's non-retributional. And here's where he goes with the story. While he is in captivity in Babylon, Manasseh basically humbles himself and he repents. As a result, God restores to Manasseh his kingdom. He goes back, he sets things straight, and they do still go into Babylonian captivity, the people. But not because of Manasseh. Actually, this writer doesn't really give clearly the cause, but he says, you know, the the Judahites, they stopped sacrificing to every god and just to Yahweh, but they kept doing it at these high places, which are these altars that are scattered around the countryside, whereas you're only supposed to sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. So, they're still doing something wrong, but it's not Manasseh's fault. The people won't listen to his reforms. So, you have these two incompatible stories of this King Manasseh, one that is basically so retributional that he, what he did cannot be eradicated even by the good of Josiah. But here, he's a repentant sinner and God restores him. So, what, so say more about why, why make those different? 
What's going on there? Well, chronicles, the, the reason is because of when they were written. And this gets us into sort of a big deal, but just, just you know, the thumbnail, and we can get into more detail in a second if we want, but the thumbnail is that the Deuteronomistic history was written probably in stages, but it reflects the, the reality of exile. And the question being asked there is, how did we end up here? How did we get to this place? And the Deuteronomistic history isn't really so much writing straight history, it's actually a judgment of history. It's a judgment of the reigns of the kings and explaining the exile on the basis of what these kings did. This is why. And so, it's sort of a downer reading the reigns of the kings and the Deuteronomistic history. It's sort of a downer because everybody's getting, nobody does anything good except for a couple. Right. It, in the Deuteronomistic history is in search of an explanation for how we ended up here. Right. Why are we in exile? And the Deuteronomistic history is going to tell you all the reasons. And, and I think that's important to put it exactly the way you did, because this is a group of maybe beleaguered people who have suffered what is unimaginable for the Judahites. God turned their back. God turned his back on them. And they're trying to come to terms with it. See, it's not so much, here is a perfect history, the content of which is revealed from God's mind into the pens of the writers. This is a story of people struggling with, where is God in all this? And the explanation is, we did something to deserve that. I'm not saying that that's wrong. It probably is historically right, you know, on on one level, but that's not the whole story. Right, right. And then Chronicles, yeah. which which I, the assumption I would have would be Chronicles is actually kind of writing with kings in one hand. Yes. And purposefully redacting or changing some of these stories to reflect a different time. Yeah, and that time could be pretty late. Uh, you know, certainly no earlier than probably the early 400s. Right. So, in other words, 100 years after they came back from exile, which happened in 539, and, you know, you talk to a lot of scholars, I don't talk to them, read them, you know, and it may be 4th century, the 300s, and some say even maybe a little bit later. And, yeah, that's, that's a different time. We're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. First, head to iTunes, rate us, give us a review. That really helps us out. Secondly, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, where you'll find ways to jump into the community, join the discussions that are going on, and offer your support at various levels. Last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks give us a lot of feedback through email, calls, and overall just help make the podcast what it is. So thanks to Chris Abbott, Joshua Quay, Gwen Stratton, David Black, Linda Davis, Alyssa McCarnas, Rachel Emery, Wayne Bartell, Julian Scott, Linda Irene, Phil Spawn, and Louis Schofield. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thanks so much. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. 
You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Now back to the podcast. To again, kind of set the stage in this big picture, we have these these voices in the in the Bible, and the one that's written in exile as as the Judahites, um, the Southern Kingdom, they're in exile, and they're trying to figure out what the heck just happened, mm-hmm. and they're asking that question: why Why are we in exile? And so the Deuteronomistic history mm-hmm. is written to sort of help us explain all of these things, and and part of it is Manasseh and and his sinfulness, but really it's the sinfulness of everyone. But that's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then, so we're fast forward a few hundred years, we are out of exile now. We've been given, you know, we're put back in the land, but it's not the same. There's no, at this point, there's no, uh, we're not, we don't have the glory days. Is the temple even around at this point? Well, the temple's around, but what's missing, the big piece of the puzzle is a Davidic king. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're no longer uh, the sovereign nation that they were promised ever since, you know, the days of Abraham and and then clearly in the days of David and that forever you would have a, a descendant sitting on the throne. Mm-hmm. And so, what, I, what I've heard is then, so Chronicles is written to answer a different question, which would be, are we still God's people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can't you can't answer that question the same way you answer the question why are we in exile? And to do that intentionally by by riffing off of and adapting the earlier history, the Deuteronomistic history, because right. you know you said sort of you imagine him writing with the Deuteronomistic history in one hand, that's more or less you know people who study this say it's pretty clear he knows exactly what he's doing and how he's changing things. 
And because it's a sermon, you know, it, it's not a sermon to explain how do we get here, but it's a sermon to sort of encourage the people to say, are we still the people of God? And, and the, the hope, see, here, here, here's why Manasseh gets sent to Babylon in the book of Second Chronicles, because this is a parable of Israel's journey into Babylonian captivity, and then they come out of Babylonian captivity being humbled and seeking God's face. So, Manasseh is sort of like a, 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 um, a little preview of, of Israel's own exile. Now, of course, when this is written, that happened a long time ago. But here's the problem. The exile is over, but things still are not set straight. We still don't have our land back. We're either under the thumb of the Persians or the Greeks at this period of time, depending on how you date this. And so, there's, there's maybe a lingering problem where God is tarrying, God is taking his time, and it's not happening the way it should. And why are we waiting? What do we have to do? Well, you know what? Humble yourselves, pray, be obedient to the covenant, look to God, hope for God, and this will turn around, trust me, but you've got to stay the course. So, here's the motivation to keep going. Right. Right. And that's why it's Babylon. That, 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 I mean, again, I don't want to harp on that, but Manasseh sent to Babylon, which makes no sense. But of course, right. it doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. Well, it makes sense if you're asking the question, are we God's people? Right. Are we still God's people? It, right. it helps to, then it, it makes a lot more sense. And I would also say that also is why, why we may never make it through the genealogy at the book of Chronicles, <laughs> but why the, the original hearers would have probably been, that would have been an inspirational mm-hmm. part of this text yeah. because it's showing the continuity. So it helps to explain why why would Chronicles begin with the genealogy? Well, the question is continuity. Are we still God's people? Are we connected yes. to the people before the exile who were God's people? Are we still in that same vein? And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Right. We are still the people of God. That's what they need to hear at that moment. It's like with kids. Sometimes they need to hear, you're going to get it. <laughs> Other times you need to hear, it's going to be okay. Right. It just depends on the situation, and the historical circumstances are very different. And, you know, this is why that reminds me, Jerry, we were talking before about the canonical order of books and things like that. And Chronicles is also in this non-historical section of the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Old Testament, called the Writings. And they knew that this doesn't go with these earlier historical and prophetic writings. It's much later because it's a very late I'll put it this way, reinterpretation of Israel's entire history for a new community of people. Right. And it's a genealogy. Yeah, it is boring, nine chapters of names, but it begins with Adam. Our pedigree goes far back, and we are still the people of God. And actually, Chronicles is, maybe this will get people to read it more, of all the books of the Old Testament, this is the most messianic. Right. Not Jesus messianic, but more like looking ahead to there will be a time where the kingdom will be restored to someone who is faithful to the covenant from the line of David. That's the undertone. Which is why in the, the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the end yes. of, the, of the book. It's a great ending to the... I love the fact that it's at the end because it reinterprets the whole story for a new time and place. And, you know, that's... Boy, do, see, that's a lesson we need to hear today, right? What, thinking about what is it... What, what would it look like for God to show up right here and right now in this situation we're in, 
in, in our lives or in our country or anything like else? What does it look like? And the way that they did that back then is they, they took the past and reworked it. They rethought it and they reinterpreted it and they even, in the case of Chronicles, rewrote it. I just think that's a fascinating and very encouraging theological lesson for us to learn in terms of just what is this Bible doing? And the fact that there is this debate in there, that's amazing. That's fantastic. That's like so real and so human and so encouraging and so enlivening. I could talk about it for days. Right. Which I, and I think I've mentioned this before is one of the reasons I get frustrated both by um, some of my friends who want to, you know, think that the Bible is just this hodgepodge collection of books smashed together in an uneducated, unsophisticated way. And my friends who on the more more conservative or evangelical side feel like they have to harmonize everything and have mm-hmm. it all say the same thing. I feel like both are dismissing some of the beauty and the and the, the actual sophistication that these writers and editors knew what they were doing. You know, you have kings in one hand and you're purposely changing it. The question isn't whether we dismiss it or not, but it's to ask why. Yeah. Why do we have these so close together and yet so profoundly different in important ways? And, you know, we see that with the different creation accounts, or we see that with the Gospels, and we have four of them, or we see it here with Kings and Chronicles, and I think we miss some of the richness of the Bible when we don't just basically assume they knew what they were doing and ask the question, well, why did they do that? Yeah, and and that's the real interest, that's the theological question, why are they doing what they're doing? And not the modern question of, how can I make this all fit together? Because God would never have two perspectives, or something like that. And right. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of that, bring us full circle because I, I have a question here. We are talking. We started with talking about retributional theology, and there's a voice in the text, the Deuteronomistic history, that really is a proponent of this retribution theology. Do good things, you get blessed. Do bad things, you get cursed. That helps to help help us understand the exile and why we're in exile. But then Chronicles, we also talked about this voice that maybe contends against that. Job, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms. Where does Chronicles fit into that? Do you see it? Do you see it upending the retributional theology? I mean, in a sense, just what we talked about—that it gives us hope—kind of does implicitly. But how does it fit into this? I, I think w- the way to talk about Chronicles, in my opinion, around this issue of retributional theology, because there's much more going on in Chronicles than just that. But I think it's answering the question on a both a personal and national level that. Whatever God's retribution was, God will treat you the way you deserve. And, and that's, that is actually an encouraging message, I think, in this period of time. Like, listen, covenant faithfulness is important, and you don't have to keep reliving that past in your moment. You can move forward with confidence that God is going to be there and eventually bless the people. So, it's, it's, not, as, it's not a strong contention against retributional theology like Psalm 73 or um, Ecclesiastes or Job or, you know, some other lament psalms. It's not quite as strong as that, but it still says, listen, that story back then, that doesn't, that doesn't hold for all time. There's a, there's a different thing that God is doing here, which for, for me, again, is, that's the amazing thing. It's not just telling the story of Israel differently. It's actually saying something about the God behind it. Right. Well, in that sense, it almost reminds me of, and I don't know where, you know, uh, scholars are today on the end of Job, but it, from what I remember, there's this like appendage on the end of Job where everything wraps up really nicely and he gets everything back. And in the end, sort of, 
in the end, I feel like Chronicles and Job don't really critique retributional theology, but they kind of nuance it. So, it's like, well, in the end, and that's where we get almost this like apocalyptic or like future feeling texts where it's like, yeah, you're right. Ecclesiastes is right. Right now, you're right. In your life, if you do good stuff, good stuff doesn't necessarily happen to you. You don't necessarily get the blessings, this and that. But in the end, mm-hmm. you will. Yeah, and that's how I feel, I feel like Chronicles does that in that that epilogue in Job, where he suffers all of these things, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know, God snaps God's fingers, right. and all of a sudden, you can never leave the idea of retribution fully, because I mean, retribution is is a, a an intentionally negative word, right? I mean, there are other ways of saying it, like. Aren't there consequences for right. actions, right? I mean, so you never leave that, but it's that whole Manasseh thing. <laughs> it's like, really? There's no plan B here? Manasseh is so bad, God cannot overlook. What kind of a God can't overlook the sin of a king, mm-hmm. right? And But, you know, th- 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 like you said before, and I think this, is, this now gets us into, like, the historical context of when these things might have been written and why— but it really certainly reads like this whole story of Manasseh and what happens afterwards. It really does read like the writers need to give a theological account for why Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. They, they need to do that. And, and the way for them to understand that historical moment is within the, the religious categories of the day, right? If, if you lose to another people, it doesn't mean your God is weak. It means you did something. In, in other words, it's like it's almost like Job again. You're in exile because you did something to deserve it. Right. And then the later people came along, like during the exile, saying things like, okay, but just for the record, I didn't do anything because I was five when that happened. And or I was born here in Babylon. Right? So that then raised other questions that other biblical writers get into. Well, how long is this going to last? How long is God going to be retributive to what happened back then? And it was like they have to sort of change. God isn't always like this. Maybe God is a different way. Yeah, so in, this, in that sense, maybe the Deuteronomistic history is almost an apology for God in the sense yes. of, well, there has to be a good reason. We, you know, and, and given in the ancient world, people groups – destroying other people groups or cities or kings ruling over other kings was never just political mm-hmm. but it was religious always and so there's an, there need to be an apology for why this happened and in a sense it was either sort of god's not strong enough or we did something wrong and sort of they opted for the we did something wrong option right cuz the other is unthinkable right yeah. especially in an honor shame society it can't be it's better for us to be shamed than it is for our God, our God to be shamed. Right. And one of the complaints of God against the Israelites in the Old Testament is that you brought shame to me. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, all these things are wrapped up. That's why, you know, you look at the theology of the Deuteronomistic history or Deuteronomy, and it's like, okay, listen, you got to dig in a little bit to the time and and why they would talk about God like this. And 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 that, if anything, again, another big issue, which we, this is another podcast, I guess, but People are always doing that. We have to do that. We're always looking at what God is like from within our own human context. And I'd like to think that God's okay with that. 
You know, so I read Deuteronomistic history, I don't say, oh, what a bunch of idiots. I say, yeah, I can understand why they would say that, but I'm also going to pay attention to these different voices that for us includes also the New Testament and say, okay, what, what picture do we put together of what God is like? And it, I hope it's not located in the book of Deuteronomy. I hope that's not the place. Right. I hope we can debate that a little bit. Well, and maybe say I don't want. Maybe we can go for a few minutes on more of the of the theological uh, how that impacts us today and how we maybe think about God. But we didn't say much about Deuteronomy itself, right? Yeah. So you have the Deuteronomistic history: Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. A little bit, maybe Jeremiah influenced it. But it, I just could imagine it can be a little confusing because this all stems from Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy goes back to Moses. And so, in terms of when you're reading your Bible, if you're just reading it through, it's almost like it's Moses who instantiates retributional theology. That's, I mean, it's coming straight from his mouth in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think historically there's more going on there that maybe Deuteronomy is later, even though it comes earlier in our Bible, was written or at least edited together much later than the way we have it in our Bible maybe attests. Yeah, and that's that's the theory, and that's where um, it gets. I mean, for people like us, it gets really interesting, you know. But for people who you know <laughs> are bored by this kind of thing, you know, uh, it it might not be all that interesting. But it gets sort of involved. But I think it's it's worth looking at at least the broad contours. But I, but I think maybe is that would be would that be a good summary? Just because I didn't want to leave that hanging of saying that De- Deuteronomy. I think I think scholarship would say was largely influenced, if not written, much later in, in the same time period we're talking about, that exile. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic idea is this, that the book of Deuteronomy probably came into the life of Israel in stages. And, I mean, again, anytime you open your mouth about any of this stuff, there's going to be other voices in scholarship that sort of nuance things differently. But the way I'm about to explain it, if you go to like a Bible scholar cocktail party and talk about this, nobody's going to look at you and think you're stupid, right? This is, this is sort of down the middle, and this is a way of thinking about it that a lot of people think is probably the best way. But Deuteronomy, if you read Deuteronomy, it's got a couple of interesting little ticks. Like, for example, it never mentions Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. It never mentions Jerusalem. It talks about the the place where the Lord will make his name dwell, or phrases like that, and that means Jerusalem. It never mentions it. It does mention a major northern site called Shechem, and that's a, that's a site that's big in the Pentateuch, and this is where certain things happened in the northern kingdom that are of importance, and that's mentioned a few times. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You also have other sort of characteristics of Deuteronomy that, long story short, has led biblical scholars by and large to agree that this is coming from the northern kingdom. Now, remember the northern north and south split in 930, around 930 BCE, and then in 722, the north fell to the Assyrians never to be heard from again. Well, 
refugees from the north, as the story is told by scholars, probably made their way down to the south and brought with them their own theology book, Deuteronomy, which then gets um, gets a makeover. It gets a makeover, but in stages, and and you can sort of see where some of those stages might be by looking at the Deuteronomistic history, because there are two kings that have one has an unqualifiedly high evaluation, another one has a ninety five percent high evaluation, and the first one is Hezekiah. People don't fall asleep. This is really interesting. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, who was king when the Assyrians attacked in 701, but they survived. Josiah is the king who likewise is trying to resist Assyrian resurgence in his day. He died in 609. And what happened was in 612, the capital of Assyria called Nineveh fell, but that doesn't mean the Assyrians are going away. And the, the people of Judah are pretty much tired of the Assyrians, and what happened was a king called Necho, Pharaoh Necho from Egypt, he was coming up uh, through Israel to, to try to help the Assyrians regain some control in the area, even though they're sort of decimated at this point, to regain some control because the Babylonians are now on the rise, and they're going to be a problem. So, let's make Assyria strong again keep the Babylonians at bay. Well, Josiah, the king of Judah, basically said, uh, we've had our fill of Assyrians through our history. They've done nothing good for us. So, he engages Pharaoh Necho in a battle in a place called Megiddo, and he winds up getting killed, Josiah, because Josiah says, listen, I'd rather take our chances with the Babylonians, right? So, so you've, you've got this moment here where Josiah is also resisting Assyrian control of the area. So, you've got the northern people who survived this Assyrian onslaught, the refugees rather, after the, after the north was decimated. And you have got these two kings that likewise are praised because they were successful in the way that the north wasn't. And so, what, what a lot of scholars think is that sort of through stages, Deuteronomy and then the Deuteronomistic history was, were written to reflect sort of this movement over, you know, a, a couple of centuries in, in the nation of Judah, uh, culminating then eventually in probably some type of editing or redacting, they call it, around the time of the Babylonian exile itself. Okay. So, Deuteronomy is really the foundation then for how the story of the kings get rewritten. Another thing, too, is Deuteronomy doesn't say Mount Sinai, it says Horeb, and Horeb is a word that is used in other texts of the Old Testament that also seem to be of northern provenance. So, you've got this makeover, like you said. You know, it, Deuteronomy comes into the south, it gets made over, and on the basis of that, you know, you've got these northern priests and maybe prophets who are now hanging out with the southern priests of prophets, and they're, they're writing together this story of what happened to our people. What is, what is going on and, 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 and all this mess and, and we can't seem to get a break and all these kings are horrible and then we go into exile. Now, that means that the book of Deuteronomy wasn't written during the time of Moses. Right. It means it probably comes from the 8th century originally and then gets these makeovers over time. And that's sort of a hard, I know, lesson to take in, I think, for, for some people perhaps, and I understand that, and I know you do too, Jared, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. I thought this stuff's from Moses. The, the thing though is when you read Deuteronomy, 
there are a lot of clues there that Moses is not the right. In fact, the book seems to go out of its way to say Moses didn't write this. Right. At the very beginning. You know, these are the words Moses wrote, spoke on the other side of the Jordan. Well, if you know the story of Moses, he died before getting into the promised land. These are the words Moses spoke on the other side of the Jordan. So, whoever's writing that is on the side of the Jordan Moses never got to. Right. Plus, why would that be Moses writing about himself in the third person? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make much sense. And plus, it's not these are the things Moses wrote. These are the things Moses spoke, and I'm writing it. Right. Yeah. Yep. And then, you know, and then the two, the, the classic, uh, the two funny ones was, uh, isn't is it Deuteronomy where he describes himself as the most humble? It's in Numbers. Oh, that's in but Numbers. It's that's idea. In numbers. There's a northern provenance there to Numbers. But, um, yeah. yeah, again, it's like, now Moses was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. Right. Did he write that? I hope not. And it recounts Moses' death, right? That's in Deuteronomy, and it says some interesting yeah. things, like um, Moses died and was buried and to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Right. And it's like, did they have like mass Alzheimer's five years later? Like nobody knows where they buried this guy? Or does this imply that a lot of time passed where no one knows where his grave is because it's been such a long time? Right. Or, you know, uh, the, uh, right after that, I think this is verse 10 in chapter 34, no prophet has arisen like Moses to this day. That, in other words, the whole force of that statement is lost if a lot of time hasn't passed. Right. So, the question is, when? Well, that's where the scholarly theories come into play, and they're all rather interesting, but bottom line is that probably the book of Deuteronomy as we know it is no earlier than like the late 7th century. It has a prehistory, but the form that we know it in is probably late 7th century, during the time of Josiah, and right before this right in the middle of Assyrian problems, and then the the imminent ascendancy of the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's a horrible time to be alive, <laughs> frankly. And Deuteronomy actually fits into that context very nicely. And and one reason that I think we wanted to, to bring this um, up and to talk about that, like the the when it when it was written matters, and under what circumstances it was it matters mm -hmm. because. Again, there are multiple voices here in these texts that present different understandings mm -hmm. of God based on what's happening in the world around them. Right. Um, how does God act and, and who is God? There's certainly some themes that are pretty strong in, in all of these voices, but there's definitely some differences as well. Right. And, and I think that ties to our world, too, and gives us this permission or trajectory to continue to rewrite that story mm -hmm. and continue to ask that question based on the world around us. Right. Is, that, is that a fair hermeneutical or how we interpret the Bible? Is it fair to say? I, I mean, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I think we do it all the time anyway, whether we realize it or not. We're always looking at what is God like within a framework, which is the only possible framework we can have, which is how we're, when we're born, where we're born, how we live, and what our experiences are. Yeah, that's always interesting that, you know, folks who are worried about that, I mean, it may be natural to be concerned about that, that there's not this ahistorical interpretation of what God is like. Right. Uh, but, I, right. but yeah, once you ask, well, what's the alternative, you, you, there's, really no, there's really nothing. <laughs> Either you, you blindly think that I don't have any context and I'm just coming at the text in this pure, naked way, mm -hmm. or you admit that we all have experiences and a f and lenses right. through which we read our Bible mm -hmm. and read the circumstances with, around us. And right. it kind of goes in this back and forth way. 
And ironically, the Bible itself shows others doing that within the Bible itself. Right. You know, Jared, before we push this to a close, we probably should at least talk about why the context helps us understand why Deuteronomy is so retributional. Because there's a historical context where that makes a lot of sense. And the the clue to that is, again, everybody talks about this. This is not like coming out of left field. Everybody talks about this. And when, when you, hold on, when you say everybody, you mean all 17 people who actually care about this kind of thing? Yes, exactly. That's everybody. Yeah, okay. Everybody. In your wife, for example. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And I shouldn't say everybody, because that's not really true. It's just because it's hard to say, like, is this a consensus? Yeah, it's a consensus. Um, consensus doesn't mean 100%, but blah, blah, blah. So all, all, pe- all smart people who agree with me will say this. I'm all right. Sorry. All okay. right. Go on. So um, Deuteronomy is modeled after what are called suzerain vassal treaties. There's a sovereign king and there are vassals under them, and the sovereign basically agrees to protect the vassals in exchange for exclusive, you know, the, the, the sovereign being their exclusive king and um, uh, paying tribute to the king and basically not causing any trouble, right? And we see a rise in this literature during the, um, during the time that's relevant for here for the Bible, for the 7th century, and by, by these Assyrian kings, who th- these are the kinds of treaties they make. We're powerful, I'm the king, you get to be under me, and in exchange for your faithfulness to me, we won't destroy you, and we'll let you live. And that's a hard offer to refuse in the 7th century when the Assyrians are basically the war machine. Deuteronomy is constructed from beginning to end, sort of there's a structure to it that looks an awful lot like these treaties. And we know these treaties because scholars read these things in the original languages and whatnot. Like, for example, and you can see there's the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That first part is a preamble saying, here's who I am. Here's what I've done for you. Now, here's what you do for me. In other words, you'd be faithful to me. That's how these suzerain vassal treaties worked. And you also see this in Deuteronomy. The first four chapters of Deuteronomy is Moses rehearsing Israel's entire history and what God did for them. And then you get into the Ten Commandments in chapter 5 and other laws. And then another big mark of these Assyrian treaties is you have some type of uh, blessings for obedience. And actually, the Assyrian treaties don't have the blessings, they only have the curses. Deuteronomy has blessings and curses, but they have about four times as many curses as blessings. And it's in those curses where things get really, really dicey, because again, if you flip to like Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's pretty graphic. It's like, Every bad thing you can imagine is going to happen. You're going to eat your own kids because <laughs> you're starving. Or, or um, you know, your enemies will uh, take your wife and children away from you as you watch. Uh, men will take your betrothed away from you for themselves. Yeah, boils and all sorts. Of, it's a long list of like really, really over-the-top curses. Well, that's the way these things were written. That is the rhetoric of the day. And so, the bottom line is this, Jared, and we, we, I know we need to sort of bring this to a close here. We're getting close to an hour even, but the bottom line is this. The threat of the Assyrians for the Judahites is real. 
the north is gone. They unsuccessfully attacked Jerusalem in 701. Now it's the 7th century, and you just never know what's going to happen. And maybe we just need to make a treaty with these people. And the book of Deuteronomy is saying, no, your true suzerain is Yahweh, not any Assyrian king. And the way to communicate that effectively to the people is to talk about how God is their true king using the rhetoric and the literature and, and even the structure the structure even of something that they would be more familiar with so deuteronomy is a religious statement exactly like you said before jared it's religious and political yeah well and and to say what you were saying another way it sounds like basically creating all this pressure to make political and of course when we say political it's also religious uh treaties with these countries that are kind of encroaching on them the Assyrians mm -hmm. who've already taken out the north and, and all of these things are happening around them. And it's almost like the Assyrian king is handing them a contract, a treaty. Right. And then right. the Deuteronomy, like I just see like these priests and, and other writers in the background as the Assyrians knocking on the door with this contract, they're writing their own contract. And Deuteronomy <laughs> right. is that contract. Um, and it has the same, I think contract's a good word because whenever we say contract, we think of a particular structure. Like if you hand me a contract, I'm not an attorney, mm -hmm. but I'll know it's a contract by the way it looks. And that's yeah, kind of... wherefores and whereases. And right. Kind of and stuff. so I think that's what what we can learn is if in the ancient world, if uh, especially the elite of the day would have looked at this, they would have seen the structure, the historical prologue, the stipulations of the treaty, the blessings and cursings, if you violate it and say, oh, wow, okay. So, it really is presenting this stark choice between are you going to follow Assyria or are you going to follow Yahweh? Um, and so, when we read this stuff, it's not so much, gee, what are God's blessings and curses for me if I obey or disobey? It's more, what is the theology at work in this ancient text? And how can I somehow engage that theology, and if need be, do what Chronicles does, to transpose it into a different key. I mean, the long and short of it, which is, again is another big topic we can't discuss here, but what difference does the gospel make in how we understand something like Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic history? Right. And what you said before about Jesus is exactly like, that's an opening for us to say, listen, maybe this isn't so much in Deuteronomy what God is like. Maybe this is the way people understood God at a point in time when the categories were there culturally for them. And maybe that's the way it always is. Right, right. Well, hey, I think that's a, an excellent way to uh, wind down this episode. Good. I'm glad you yeah. do. So, we'll leave, I, I think we'll leave everyone to, <laughs> the big to grapple with that question. Um, I yeah. think it's a really good question that comes up again and again of... Uh, is God, you know, what what is God doing in the text or with the text or what are, what are people doing based on what God's doing and, and all those questions of what then are we allowed to do, and not just allowed to do, but responsible to do as people of faith right. in Christian communities today with the Bible. And it's amazing that we got to that, Jared, by looking at Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomistic history. These, these, anytime you dig into the Bible, I think we all tend to come back to some of the same questions. What about us? Which often comes down to what is God like? Right. Good. All right. All righty. Well, we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, everybody. See ya. As always, thank you for listening to the Bible for Normal People podcast. Thank you for supporting us by downloading. Jared and I have a lot of fun doing this. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was creating spaces, and that was our vision um, for Patreon. 
at our community online at patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, as well as the website, the Bible for normal people.com or pedens.com where we have these conversations a lot. And hopefully we are creating safe places. So if you want to check more uh, into those, you can go to the Bible for normal people.com or patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. See ya. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.